Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you this week from Arlington, Texas. And I'm Kim Roberts sitting in today for Natasha Smith coming to you from just down the road in South Lake, Texas. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, an update in our ongoing coverage of Bible translation. We check in on a new way of translating the Bible that could disrupt the industry. Also, you may have heard the expression, it ain't the crime, it's the cover-up. Well, pastors and ministry leaders are learning that the hard way. I'll explain later in the program. We begin today with new developments in the sex abuse case plaguing the Anglican Church in North America. Yeah, three members of the uh, group overseeing the investigation into sexual abuse allegations uh, in the Anglican Church in North America's Upper Midwest Diocese resigned on Monday, January 17th, saying that the team that they had been on downplayed or ignored abuse survivors' needs. The move comes days after the group called the Provincial Response Team named a firm to investigate how diocesan leadership handled the allegations. To the survivors on the outside, these three resigning team members wrote, uh, the three of us, uh, as their advocates on the inside, uh, feel like that the entire process was never survivor-centered. This was a letter written by Autumn Hannah Vanderhey, the Reverend Gina Rose, and Kristen Price. They went on to say, instead, it seemed designed to think first and foremost about ACNA, a familiar yet fatal flaw in trying to balance protecting the institution and creating a process for real accountability. And Kim, I should pause here and note a word of disclosure. Gina Rose, one of the former members of the team, one of the three that resigned, is a deacon in the Anglican Church in North America church congregation that I attend in Charlotte, North Carolina. The three cited the team's failure to deliver promptly on promises of financial assistance to alleged victims, the team's lack of clarity around decision-making processes, and the lack of communication between members of the team. Yeah, their resignation letter went on to say, we hope that the public protests of the victims amplified by our resignation jars the province into considering a truly trauma-informed and fully survivor-centered approach moving forward. Warren, our next story is about a case before Chicago Circuit Court and that court's decision to affirm a denomination's ability to set its own hiring and firing practices. Yeah, this is an unusual case, and it actually started back in 2017. Neil Taylor was suspended as a pastor of Jesus People after an individual that he and his wife had cared for as a child years later accused him of sexual abuse. They had actually cared for this uh, child in the 1970s, long before he became a pastor. Taylor had then been credentialed later in his life and career uh, as an evangelical covenant church pastor in 1989, and then he was ordained in 2004. What makes this case 
hard is that the claims against Neil Taylor were ultimately dismissed. And the ECC, the Evangelical Covenant Church, took a long time, took so long that Taylor was not able to either keep his job at his current church or get another job as a pastor. And what's interesting here is that even the ECC admitted that that was the case. Well, Taylor sued the Evangelical Covenant Church, lost that case, and a circuit court dismissed the case. He appealed to the Illinois First District Appellate Court, and that court has dismissed the appeal as well. Yeah, it's important to note that the court did not rule on whether Taylor was or was not wronged by the ECC. They didn't even really consider the facts. Its decision was focused on who had jurisdiction. The appellate court decision said, and I'm quoting here, different religious organizations may have different views regarding what constitutes fitness to serve as clergy. We cannot review such decisions without violating the First Amendment by approving some views and rejecting others. Thus, because plaintiff's complaint directly challenged defendant's internal investigative and disciplinary procedure, the circuit court lacked jurisdiction and properly dismissed the case. Warren, we need to take a break. When we return, the Lilly Foundation makes a huge gift to preserve Black churches in the United States. We'll have details. I'm Kim Roberts, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and we'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Kim Roberts, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, the Lilly Foundation has made a $20 million donation to preserve Black churches in the United States. Yeah, a new effort to preserve historic Black churches in the U.S. uh, received that $20 million donation, and it'll be used for uh, congregations not just to um, help restore their buildings. So, for example, buildings that were slammed during a tornado that killed 20 people in Mayfield, Kentucky last month. But it'll also go to support religious, educational, charitable um, activities related to those churches. Uh, They're putting the money specifically into a fund called the African-American Cultural Heritage Action Fund. The $20 million from the Lilly Endowment is designed to be seed funding for the Preserving Black Churches Project. Uh, That, according to the National Trust for Historic Preservation, the group that launched this fund. 
the announcement about the donation from the Lilly Endowment was timed to coincide with the Martin Luther King Jr. national holiday on Monday. Yeah, the fund had previously assisted congregations, including Mother Emanuel AME Church. Uh, You might remember that church because it's where a white supremacist killed nine parishioners during a Bible study in Charleston, South Carolina back in 2015, and Bethel Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, which was a historic church that had been a stalwart of the civil rights movement and which was bombed in the 1950s. Warren, our next story involves sexual misconduct. Sadly, there's nothing new about these kinds of stories. We have one almost every week. But increasingly, it's the way these cases are handled that is becoming the issue. Yeah, it sure is. And I'm going to come to that important point in just a minute. But first, let me give you a few details of this particular situation. A pastor in Indiana has been temporarily removed from his position as pastor after being accused not of sexual misconduct himself, but for failing to take appropriate action in a sexual misconduct case that involved one of his relatives who was a minor. The pastor is Jared Olivetti, and the church is Emmanuel Reformed Presbyterian Church in West Lafayette, Indiana. Yeah, Olivetti had been placed on leave until the commission could conduct an investigation and hold an ecclesiastical trial. Now, the alleged abuse was by a teenage boy. Uh, That teenage boy was one of Olivetti's relatives, and he had allegedly performed this abuse on another child. According to an Indianapolis Star investigation back in December, uh, Olivetti and Emmanuel Reform's elder board knew about the alleged abuse for four months before the congregation was told, and that Olivetti had tried to downplay the incident and manipulate the church's response. So in this case, the pastor was not the perpetrator of the abuse. However, he knew abuse was happening and apparently failed to act appropriately. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that takes us back to that point, Kim, that you mentioned earlier at the top of the show. I invoke the old expression that originally came from the Watergate days back in the 1970s. Uh, it ain't the crime, it's the cover-up that will get you. And it's important for pastors, ministry leaders, and all of us to keep that expression in mind uh, because knowledge does, in fact, create a duty to act in sexual abuse cases. Sometimes that duty is plain in the law. So, for example, in some cases, uh, those in authority, pastors, teachers, others, are required to report sexual abuse. Uh, But in all cases, there is a moral, ethical, and professional duty. And how to deal with sexual abuse, what reporting requirements may be in your state, for example, is usually not something that gets taught in seminary or Bible college. So pastors and ministry leaders need to educate themselves. Not only, again, is it the right thing to do, but as this story indicates, a failure to act can have pretty serious professional and vocational consequences. Well, let's take a look at one more story before we take another break. Another story out of Indiana, and another story of sexual abuse. Yeah, a former Indiana youth pastor has been sentenced to more than 20 years in prison for molesting preteen boys who had participated in a youth 
uh, group at the church where he was on staff. Scott Christner led a youth group at First Baptist Church in Goshen, Indiana. He was charged with 10 felony counts of child molestation and two felony counts of sexual misconduct with a minor. Uh, five victims had accused Christner of touching them inappropriately between 2012 and 2019, sometimes at his house, according to the court documents. He was initially arrested uh, in November of 2019, so more than two years ago, uh, when the first victims came forward. Then he was released on bond and arrested again when four more victims surfaced. He pleaded guilty on November 4th to felony child molestation charges as part of a plea deal. Yeah, some of the parents uh, of the victims said in police affidavits that Christner had been a trusted member of the church family, but that he had been living a double life, uh, pretending to be a kind, giving man while also molesting kids. That was a direct quote, by the way, from the Goshen News. They were in turn quoting from the documents of the court. Warren, we're going to take another break when we return our weekly lightning round of Ministry News of the Week. I'm Kim Roberts with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Kim Roberts, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Warren, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first? Well, Afghanistan is up first. Uh, It's the most dangerous country in the world for Christians, according to an annual list put together by the Christian watchdog group Open Doors. Now, this is the first time in two decades that North Korea has not been number one on that list. Open Doors, though, said that the Taliban's takeover of the Afghan government in mid-August forced many Afghan Christians, most of whom had been converts from Islam, uh, to go into hiding. Overall, no new countries appeared in the Open Doors' top 10 most dangerous countries list. Uh, Afghanistan and North Korea just swapped places. Afghanistan had been number two last year. Warren, you say North Korea fell from number one to number two on the list. But its persecution score increased slightly. Yeah, that's right. Uh, This is not in any way a a situation where North Korea is getting better. And in fact, as you said, it got worse this year. It's uh, been um, arresting Christians. Uh, North Korea has been arresting Christians and closing house churches. Uh, The country also adopted a new law, which was uh, designed to punish what it calls reactionary 
thought. So literally thought police that bars the Bible, among many other foreign published materials. Now, I should say, Kim, that you know this story is not typically a story that we cover here at Ministry Watch. It's not one of fraud and abuse of a Christian ministry based here in the United States. But I know so many of our listeners pray for the persecuted church all around the world, and many of the organizations that we cover, including Open Doors, they are a part of the Ministry Watch 1000 database. So it's one of the reasons why I wanted to mention this story. Another reason I wanted to mention this story is just to, once again, kind of give a gentle uh, warning to our listeners, a lot of unethical organizations will make claims that they are working in these countries, in Afghanistan and North Korea and elsewhere, because they're closed countries, those claims are hard to verify. So uh, once again, we come back to the situation where if you don't really know a Christian ministry, don't give money to them, even if they claim to be working in hard parts of the world. We saw that earlier, or I should say late last year, in, um, with ministries raising literally tens of millions of dollars to help in Afghanistan, and we really don't know where that money went. Well, Warren, this week we also know the passing of an extraordinary church leader. Yeah, we don't do a lot of obituaries uh, on this podcast, Kim, as you know, but uh, this one I did want to mention. We occasionally do a few, and I think George Oliver Wood is one that we ought to note. George Wood was the longtime Assemblies of God leader. Uh, He was the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God, which is the senior leader in that denomination for 10 years, from 2007 to 2017. In fact, he was the fourth long tenured general superintendent in the entire history of the Assemblies of God. His career and ministry was also marked by a series of firsts for that denomination. For example, he was the first general superintendent to have been a missionary kid to China, the first to graduate from the Assembly of God's Evangel University, and the first with an earned doctoral degree. And I should also add that he had a law degree on top of his earned doctorate. He was also one of the first leaders in the Assemblies of God denomination to recognize the importance of racial and ethnic diversity. Yeah, and and I think this is a really important point, especially during the week whenever we remember Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, During the uh, 1960s and 70s within the Assembly of God denomination, uh, there was this uh, principle of church governance that within the denomination was called the homogenous unit principle. And it basically said that it was better for individual church congregations to be all one racial group or ethnic group. Uh, In fact, this is the way they described themselves this principle. People like to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. And while there is, of course, some truth to that, um, that people, you know, do like to hear the Bible, for example, in their own language, and they like for it to be made relevant to their culture. But Wood really rocked the boat saying that it was kind of veiled racism. Uh, He wrote an article for uh, an AG publication in the early 70s called Does Jesus Really Want His Church to Be That Way? He argued that the early church drew converts from a myriad of ethnic groups in different languages and cut across all classes. This vision of a heterogeneous church rather than a homogenous church uh, was one that would 
championed his entire career and ultimately became the principle that was dominant within the Assemblies of God denomination. Well, Warren, I know Ministry Watch has also written a lot about the Bible translation industry in the past two years. And you posted a new article this week. What's the latest? Well, the Bible translation industry takes in about $500 million a year in donations. With all that money, though, it produces only about 15 completed Bible translations each year. You can kind of do the math on that, and that's far more than $30 million per completed transla- translation. Uh, that comes uh, at that pace, it'll take about 60 billion dollars in more than 130 years to translate the Bible into the remaining languages that do not yet have a Bible translation. Still, even with those numbers, Bible translation organizations continue to raise money, making ambitious claims that are impossible to verify because of a lack of transparency in the industry. Yeah, and we've been reporting about that lack of transparency and sort of the convoluted fundraising structures that exist there. And these are some of the reasons that an organization called the Strategic Resource Group uh, caught my attention. Uh, They have embarked on an experiment to see if a secular company, a secular translation company, which they call a translation service provider, or TSP, can translate the Bible more efficiently. About six months ago, I wrote an article about the kickoff of this program. Program. And, and I want to stress that it's only six months in, but it could be a game-changing effort um, to translate the Bible using these TSPs. Uh, the project leader for this initiative is a woman named Jane Schoen. She's the Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Strategic Resource Group, or SRG. The goals of Schoen and SRG are to translate the Bible into 31 languages that are spoken by currently unreached people groups in the Middle East and North Africa, the so-called MENA region of the world. Uh, But they've just started with three languages, two in Saudi Arabia and one in Pakistan. I checked in with Jane this week for an update. Uh, I plan to continue to check in periodically with her to see how that project is going. And for our purposes now, the short answer is it's going pretty well. Uh, You can listen to the entire conversation that I had with Jane Schoen uh, on this podcast, an earlier episode, uh, and read an edited version of our conversation posted on the front page of our website right now. Well, Warren, who's in Christina Darnell's Ministries Making a Difference column this week? A couple of ministries that she wanted to highlight. The D.L. Moody Center, named after, of course, Dwight L. Moody in Northfield, Massachusetts, announced that uh, it would promote Dr. James Spencer to be president of that organization. Uh, The D.L. Moody Center is a spiritual renewal destination with an emphasis on evangelism and discipleship, but it also teaches uh, a lot of classes in different areas that are in Spencer's area of expertise, uh, disciplines such as sociology, decision-making, media studies, and organizational leadership. We also feature kind of a perennial uh, organization uh, on this ministry's Making a Difference list, and that is Compassion International. Compassion International is an organization that is that we often mention in this ministry's Making a Difference column. They recently raised $35 million through its Phil the Stadium campaign, which was a campaign that used a lot of um, football um, stars to help them with that effort. The money is going to be used to provide food, medical care, and support for more than 76 
thousand children worldwide whose support was interrupted by COVID-19 shutdowns. And finally, the Billy Graham Center merits a mention this week. They deployed chaplains to New York City after an apartment fire that I'm sure many of our listeners know about, a fire that killed 17 people, including eight children, injured at least 44 people uh, a couple of weeks ago. And Billy Graham Rapid Response Team had chaplains on the ground literally within hours of that event taking place. Well, any thoughts before we go, Warren? Yeah, yeah, I do uh, have a couple of quick reminders. I mentioned last week that Christina's uh, Ministries Making a Difference column is made up of information that we mostly get from our readers and listeners. They send us news tips, press releases, email links, uh, and Christina traces down the details, and that's how we get a lot of our other stories as well. Uh, for example, uh, in uh, last week's podcast, you might remember the story that I did on the Point Church. Again, that was a tip from readers. So if you have a story that you'd like for us to cover uh, or a ministry that you think needs a closer look, please email us. Our email is info at ministrywatch.com. That email will come directly to my desk. I can't promise you that we will do a story, but I can promise you that I look at every single email and consider them very carefully. And I also want to remind all of our listeners that next week on Tuesday, I'll be holding a free online webinar with Wade Mullen. Uh, Wade Mullen is the author of a really excellent book called Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and freeing yourself from its power. If you're one of those that listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, the podcast that has just been wildly popular on Christianity Today's site, then um, you will probably be aware of some of the ideas that we're going to talk about in that webinar. There's a, uh, it, Again, it's a free webinar, but you do need to sign up. There's a sign-up link at the top of my daily emails. Well, Warren, the producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Ben Warwick. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Seddon. Writers who contributed to today's program include Anne Stike, Erica Ramirez, Adele M. Banks, Jay Reeves, Kevin McGill, Catherine Post, Christina Darnell, and you, Warren. I'm Kim Roberts in South Lake, Texas. And I'm Warren Smith. This week, I'm also coming to you from the Republic of Texas, Arlington, to be precise. You've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.